Between Info Shops and Insurrection, U.S. Anarchism, Movement Building, and the Racial Order, by Joel Olson. This is a slightly revised version of a chapter from the new book Contemporary Anarchist Studies, edited by Randall Amster, Luis Fernandez, etc., Routledge, 2009. Joel Olson teaches political theory at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff and has been around anarchist circles in the United States for many years. Anarchism has always had a hard time dealing with race. In its classical era, from the time of Proudhound in the 1840s to Goldman in the 1930s, it sought to inspire the working class to rise up against the church, the state, and capitalism. This focus on God, government, and gold was revolutionary, but didn't quite know how to confront the racial order in the United States. Most U.S. anarchist organizations and activists opposed racism in principle, but they tended to assume that it was a byproduct of class exploitation. That is, they thought that racism was a tool the bosses used to divide the working class, a tool that would disappear once capitalism was abolished. They appealed for racial unity against the bosses, but they never analyzed white supremacy as a relatively autonomous form of power in its own right. Unfortunately, contemporary anarchism, which dates roughly from Bookchin to Zerzan, has not done much better. It has expanded the classical era's critique of class domination to a critique of hierarchy and all forms of oppression, including race. Yet, with a few exceptions, the contemporary American anarchist scene still has not analyzed race as a form of power in its own right, or as a potential source of solidarity. As a consequence, anarchism remains largely white, a largely white ideology in the U.S. Despite this troublesome tradition, I argue that anarchist theory has the intellectual resources to develop a powerful theory of racial oppression, as well as strategies to fight it, but first it must confront two obstacles placed in front of it by the contemporary American anarchist scene. First, it must overcome an analysis of white supremacy that understands racism as but one hierarchy among others. Racial oppression is not simply one of many forms of domination. It has played a central role in the development of capitalism in the United States. As a result, struggles against racial oppression have a strategic centrality that others lack. The other struggles lack. Second, it must reject the current U.S. anarchist scene's info shops or insurrection approach to politics and instead focus on movement building. Organizing working-class movements, which was so central to the classical anarchist tradition, has given way to creating autonomous zones, like info shops, art spaces, affinity groups, and collectives on the one hand, and glorifying protests, riots, and sabotage on the other. But in the info shops and insurrection approaches, the, ver the vital work of building movements falls through the middle. In a class society, politics is fundamentally a struggle for hegemony, or a struggle to define what Antonio Gramsci calls the common sense of a society. In the United States, white supremacy has been the central means of maintaining capitalism as common sense. Building mass movements against the racial order, then, is the way in which a new hegemony and anarchist common sense can be created. But in building that common sense, I argue that contemporary American anarchism should look less toward Europe and more toward the struggles of peoples of color in their own backyard for historical lessons and inspiration. Hierarchy, Hegemony, and White Supremacy The intellectual framework for most of contemporary American anarchism rests on a critique of hierarchy. Murray Bookchin, perhaps the most important theorist of the concept, defines hierarchy as a complex system of command and obedience in which elites enjoy varying degrees of control over their subordinates. Bookchin, 1982, 4. 
Capitalism, organized religion, and the state are important forms of hierarchy, but the concept includes other relations of domination, such as of the young and the old, of women by men, of one ethnic group by another, of masses by bureaucrats, of countryside by town, and in a more subtle psychological sense, of body by mind, of spirit by a shallow instrumental rationality, and of nature by society and technology. Four. Hierarchy pervades our social relations and reaches into our psyche, thereby percolating into virtually every realm of existence. The critique of hierarchy, Bookchin argues, is more expansive and radical than the Marxist critique of capitalism or the classical anarchist critique of the state because it poses the need to alter every thread of the social fabric, including the way we experience reality, before we can truly live in harmony with each other and with the natural world. Bookchin, 1986, 22-23. This analysis of hierarchy broadened contemporary anarchism into a critique of all forms of oppression, including capitalism, the state, organized religion, patriarchy, heterosexism, anthropocentrism, racism, and more. The political task of contemporary anarchism, then, is to attack all forms of oppression, not just a main one, like capitalism or the state, because without an attack on hierarchy itself, other forms of oppression will not necessarily wither away after the main one has been destroyed. This critique of what is sometimes called class reductionism is powerful, for while patriarchy is surely connected to capitalism, for example, it can hardly be reduced to it. Despite this advantage, however, the anarchist critique of all forms of oppression fails to distinguish among those forms of oppression that have been more significant than others to the structuring of U.S. society. In other words, the critique of hierarchy in general lacks the ability to explain how various forms of hierarchy are themselves hierarchically organized. It correctly insists that no one form of oppression is morally worse than another, but this does not mean that all forms of oppression play an equal role in shaping the social structure. The American state, for example, was not built on animal cruelty or child abuse, however pervasive and heinous these forms of domination are. Rather, as I will argue below, it was built on white supremacy, which has shaped nearly every other form of oppression in the United States, including class, gender, and religion, and the state, and animal cruelty and child abuse. Understanding white supremacy should therefore be central to any American anarchist theory, and developing political programs to fight it should be a central component of anarchist strategy, even if racism is not morally more evil than another form of oppression. The critique of hierarchy, in other words, confuses a moral condemnation of all forms of oppression with a political and strategic analysis of how power functions in the United States. It resists the notion that in certain historical contexts, certain forms of hierarchy play a more central role in shaping society than do others. It assumes that because all forms of oppression are evil and interconnected, that fighting any form of oppression will have the same revolutionary impact. For this reason, it assumes that there is no more need to fight racial discrimination than, say, vivisection, since both are equally evil and interconnected forms of domination. But as the great theorist W.E.B. Dubois shows in his classic Black Reconstruction, the primary reason for the failure of the development of a significant anti-capitalist movement in the United States is white supremacy. Rather than uniting with black workers to overthrow the ruling class and build a new society, as classical anarchist and communist theory predicts, white workers throughout American history have chosen to side with capital. Through a tacit but nonetheless real agreement, the white working class ensures that the continuous and relatively undistributed accumulation of capital will exist by producing the rest of the working class rather than uniting with it.
by policing the rest of the working class rather than uniting with it. In exchange, white workers receive racial privileges, largely paid for by capitalists and guaranteed by the democratic political system. Dubois calls these privileges the public and psychological wages of whiteness. And he's quoting here. It must be remembered that the white group of laborers, while they received a low wage, were compensated in part by a sort of public and psychological wage. They were given public deference and titles of courtesy because they were white. They were admitted freely with all classes of white people to public functions, public parks, and the best schools. The police were drawn from their ranks, and the courts, dependent on their votes, treated them with such leniency as to encourage lawlessness. Their votes selected public officials, and while this all had a small effect upon the economic situation, it had a great effect upon the personal treatment and deference shown them. Pages 700 to 701. At the time of the publication of Black Reconstruction in 1935, these wages included the right to vote, exclusive access to the best jobs, an expectation of higher wages and better benefits, the capacity to sit on juries, the right to enjoy public accommodations, and the right to consider oneself the equal of any other. Today they include in part the right to the lowest mortgage rates, the right to one decent to decent treatment by the police, the right to feel relatively immune from criminal prosecution, the right to assume one's success is due entirely to one's own effort, the right to declare that institutionalized racial discrimination is over, and the right to be a full citizen in a liberal democratic state. These wages undermine class consciousness among those who receive them because they create an interest in an expectation of favored treatment within the capitalist system rather than outside of it. The racial order in the United States, then, is essentially a cross-class alliance between capital and one section of the working class. I make this argument in detail in my book, The Abolition of White Democracy. The group that makes up this alliance is defined as white. It acts like a club. Its members enjoy certain privileges so that the poorest, most wretched members share, in certain respects, a status higher than that of the most esteemed persons excluded from it. Ignatev and Garvey, 1996. Membership in the white club is dynamic and determined by existing membership. Richard Wright once said, Negroes are Negroes because they are treated like Negroes. Wright, 1957, 148. Similarly, whites are whites because they are treated like whites. The treatment one receives in a racial order defines one's race rather than the other way around. You are not privileged because you are white, you are white because you are privileged. Slaves and their descendants have typically been the antithesis of this club, but various other groups have occupied the subordinate position in the racial binary, including Native Americans, Latinos, Latinas, Chinese Americans, and others. Some, such as Irish and Jewish immigrants, started out in the subordinate category, but over time successfully became white. Ignatev, 1995, Brodkin, 1999. Others, such as Mexican-American elites in California in the 19th century, started out as white but lost their superior status and were thrown into the non-white group. The system of racial oppression has been central to the maintenance of capitalist hegemony in the United States. If, as Marx and Engels argue in the Communist Manifesto, capitalism tends to bring workers together by teaching them how to cooperate, and if this cooperation has revolutionary tendencies, what the bourgeoisie produces above all are its own gravediggers, then capitalists need to break up the very cooperation that their system of production creates. Now, different societies have developed different ways of disrupting class solidarity, often by giving advantage to one set of workers over the others. 
Perhaps in Turkey, it's through the subordination of the Kurds. Kurds. Perhaps in Saudi Arabia, it's through the subordination of women. Perhaps in Bolivia, it's through the subordination of the indigenous population. Perhaps in Western Europe, it's through social democracy. In the United States, it has been through the racial order. The wages of whiteness have undermined the solidarity that the working class otherwise develops daily in its activities. It has fundamentally shaped other hierarchies, such as gender, ethnicity, sexuality, and religion, refracting them through its prism. In so doing, it has contributed to making capitalism seem like common sense, even to many workers, particularly white ones, who stumble under its burdens. The racial order, then, is not merely one form of hierarchy among others. It is a form of hierarchy that shapes and organizes the others in order to ensure capitalist accumulation. Morally, it is not more evil than other forms of domination, but politically it has played a more central role in organizing American society. Strategically speaking, then, one would think that it would be a central target of American anarchist analysis and strategy. Curiously, though, this has not been the case. Between Infoshops and Insurrection it's surprising how little thought the contemporary American anarchist scene has given to strategy. Broadly speaking, it upholds two loose models that it presents as strategies and repeats over and over with little self-reflection or criticism. I call these models Infoshops and Insurrection. An Infoshop is a space where people can learn about ra radical ideas, where radicals can meet other radicals, and where political work such as meetings, public forums, fundraisers, etc. can get done. In the InfoShop strategy, InfoShops and other autonomous zones model the free society. Building free spaces inspires others to spontaneously create their own, spreading counter-institutions throughout society to the point where they become so numerous that they overwhelm the powers that be. The very creation of anarchist free spaces has revolutionary implications, their proponents argue, because it can lead to the organic, i.e. spontaneous, undirected, non-hierarchical spreading of such spaces throughout society in a way that eventually challenges the state. An insurrection is the armed uprising of the people. According to the insurrection strategy, anarchists acting in affinity groups or other small informal organizations can engage in actions that encourage spontaneous uprisings in various sectors of society. As localized insurrections grow and spread, they combine into a full-scale revolution that overthrows the state and capital and makes the possible the creation of a free society. Infoshops serve very important functions, and any movement needs such spaces. Likewise, insurrection is a focal event in any revolution, for it turns the patient organizing of the movement and the boiling anger of the people into an explosive confrontation with the state. The problem is, when infoshops and insurrection get taken as revolutionary strategies in themselves, rather than as part of a broader revolutionary movement. In the infoshops model, autonomous spaces become the movement, rather than serving in it. In the insurrection model, spontaneous upheaval replaces the movement by equating insurrection with revolution rather than seeing it as one part of the revolutionary process. The infoshops and insurrection models, in other words, both misunderstand the process of social transformation. Radical change may be initiated by spontaneous revolts that are supported by subterranean free spaces, but these revolts are almost always the product of movement building. Social movements are central to radical change. The classical anarchists understood this, for they were very concerned to build working-class movements, such as Bakunin's participation in the International Workingmen's Association, Berkman and Goldman's support for striking workers, Lucy Parsons' work in the International Working People's Association, and the Wobblies' call for one big union. 
To be sure, they all built free spaces and engaged in propaganda by the deed, but these were not their sole or even dominant activities. They did them in order to build the anarchist movement, not as a substitute for movement building. Yet surprisingly, much of the contemporary anarchist scene has abandoned movement building. In fact, the info shops and insurrection models both seem to be designed in part to avoid the slow, difficult, but absolutely necessary work of building mass movements. Indeed, anarchist publications like Green Anarchy are explicit about this, deriding movement building as inherently authoritarian. A revolution is not an info shop, nor an or an insurrection, or creating a temporary autonomous zone, or engaging in sabotage. It cannot be so easy, so organic, so absent of political struggle. A revolution is an actual historical event whereby one class overthrows another, and, in the anarchist ideal, thereby makes it possible to abolish all forms of oppression. Such revolutions are the product of mass movements. A large group of people organized in struggle against the state and or other institutions of power to achieve their ends. When movements become powerful enough, when they sufficiently weaken elites, and when fortune is on their side, they lead to an insurrection, and then perhaps a revolution. Yet in much of the anarchist scene today, building free spaces and or creating disorder are regarded as the movement itself, rather than components of one. Neither the info shops nor insurrection models build movements that can express the organized power of the working class, thus necessary Thus, the necessary, difficult, slow, inspiring process of building movements falls through the cracks between sabotage and the autonomous zone. The strategy of building autonomous zones or engaging in direct action with small affinity groups that are divorced from social movements assumes that radicals can start the revolution. But revolutionaries don't make revolutions. Millions of ordinary and oppressed people do. Anarchist theory and practice today provides little sense of how these people are going to be part of the process, other than to create their own free spaces or to spontaneously join the festivals of upheaval. Ironically, then, the info shops and insurrection approaches lead many anarchists to take an elitist approach to politics, one in which anarchists show the way for people to follow, never realizing that throughout history, revolutionaries, including anarchists, have always been trying to catch up to the people, not the other way around. Movement building and the racial order. Which brings us back to the racial order. The abandonment of movement building by the bulk of the contemporary American anarchist scene has led it to ignore the most important radical political transition in the United States, the black freedom movements against slavery, segregation, and other forms of racial oppression. The intellectual tradition of American anarchism has always looked more toward Europe and sometimes Mexico than the United States. American anarchists know more about the Paris Commune, the Kronstadt Rebellion, the Mexican Revolution, the Spanish Civil War, Paris 1968, the German Autonomen, the Zapatista Uprising in Chiapas, than they do about the abolitionist movement, Reconstruction, the Sharecroppers Union, the Civil Rights Movement, or the Black, Brown, Red Power Movements. It's not that American anarchists in history are ignored. Haymarket, Berkman, Parsons, Declare, Goldman, Bookchin, and Zerzan all have their place in the anarchist pantheon, but these persons and events are curiously detached from an understanding of the social conditions that produced them, especially the racial order that has dominated U.S. history. One consequence of this European focus, I suspect, is that it has contributed to the predominantly white demographic of the contemporary anarchist scene. The ignorance of black freedom movements is so profound that even anarchistic tendencies within them get ignored. Nat Turner led a slave uprising in 1831 that killed over 50 whites and struck terror throughout the South. It should clearly count as one of the most important insurrections in American history. 
Historians often describe William Lloyd Garrison, a leader of the abolitionist movement, as a Christian anarchist. Yet, he's never, almost never included in anarchist-produced histories. The black-led Reconstruction government in South Carolina from 1868 to 1874, which Dubois dubbed the South Carolina Commune, did far more toward building socialism than the Paris Commune in 1871 ever did. Ella Baker's anti-authoritarian critique of Martin Luther King Jr. encouraged young civil rights workers to create their own autonomous and directly democratic organization, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, arguably the most important direct action civil rights group. Further, the race, racial consciousness produced by these struggles has often been broader, radical, and international than the consciousness produced by other U.S. struggles, even if it describes itself as nationalist. See Robin Kelly's great book, Freedom Dreams, for more on this. Yet these persons and events curiously form no part of the anarchist scene's historical tradition. In some, the black freedom struggles have been the most revolutionary tradition in American history, yet the anarchist scene is all but unaware of it. I suggest that there is more to learn about anarchism in the U.S. from Harriet Tubman, Abby Kelly, Nate Shaw, Malcolm X, W.E.B. Dubois, Ella Baker, Fannie Lou Hamer, James Foreman, Angela Davis, and Asada Shakur than from Proudhon, Kropotkin, Bakunin, Berkman, and Goldman. There's more to learn from abolitionism than Haymarket, more from Reconstruction than the Spanish Civil War, more from the current social conditions of black America than the Global South. To see this, however, requires modifying the critique of hierarchy so that it can explain new forms of domination, how forms of domination are themselves organized. It requires abandoning the info shops and insurrection models for commitment to building movements. It requires looking to Mississippi and New Orleans more than Russia or Paris. This is not to say that American anarchism has been completely silent on race. The anarchist critique of white supremacy began in the 1980s and 90s with the work of black anarchists such as Kuwazi Balagoon and Lorenzo Camoba Irvin, the journal Race Trader, which was sympathetic to the anarchist scene and did much to develop it intellectually regarding race, and anarchist organizations such as Love and Rage, Black Autonomy, Anarchist People of Color, and the anarchist influence Bring the Ruckus. Not coincidentally, these organizations also tend or tended to emphasize movement building rather than info shops or insurrection. It's this tradition that influences my analysis here, but it is hardly a dominant perspective in the anarchist scene today. After the Berlin Wall When the Berlin Wall fell in 1989, followed by the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, many anarchists were confident that anarchism would fill the void left by state communism and once again become the dominant ideological challenge to liberalism like it was before the Russian Revolution. This confidence, even exuberance, was on display throughout the U.S. anarchist scene in publications such as Anarchy, Fifth Estate, and Profane Existence, in the creation of new organizations such as the Network of Anarchist Collectives and the burst of anarchist info shops opening up in Chicago, Minneapolis, San Francisco, D.C., New York, and elsewhere. It was an exciting time, yet anarchism never filled the void. It never captured the hearts and minds of ordinary people. A similar optimism followed the uprising in Seattle in 1999. Anarchists again confidently predicted the emergence of a new powerful movement, yet once again it didn't happen. Today, anarchism in the U.S. is about the same place it was in 1989, a static ideology and a loose scene of largely white 20-somethings kept together by occasional gatherings, short-lived collectives, the underground music scene, and a handful of magazines and websites. What went wrong in 1989 and 1999? 
Why hasn't anarchism filled the void left by the collapse of communism? Why hasn't anarchism grown as a movement and as a philosophy? Most of the answer, no doubt, lies in the fact that anarchists grossly underestimated the power of capitalism and liberalism. All socialist ideologies lost popularity with the fall of the Soviet Union since there no longer seemed to be a viable, actually existing, alternative to capitalism. Capitalism and liberalism appeared invincible, and the world system seemed to be at the end of history. September 11, 2001 brought a new antagonist to global capital, religious fundamentalism, but it hardly represents a libertarian alternative. World events, in other words, smothered libertarian socialism between neoliberalism and fundamentalism. But part of the problem, I have suggested, lies within anarchism itself, the failure to develop a theory of U.S. history that recognizes the centrality of racial oppression, combined with a related failure to concentrate on the building of mass movements, has contributed to anarchism's continued marginalization. But what if this was to change? What if American anarchists went from building info shops and plotting insurrections to building movements, particularly movements against the racial order? They could still build free spaces and encourage insurrection, of course, but these efforts would be part of a broader strategy, rather than strategies in themselves. What if anarchists, instead of concentrating on creating autonomous zones on the U.S.-Mexico border, as some have tried to do, worked to build movements in resistance to anti-immigration laws? What if anarchists, instead of planning largely ineffective clandestine direct actions with small affinity groups, worked to build movements against the police, who are at the forefront of maintaining the color line? What if anarchists, in addition to supporting jailed comrades, worked with family members of incarcerated people to organize against prisons? What if anarchists stopped settling for autonomous zones and furtive direct actions and focused on undermining the cross-class alliance and on changing the common sense of this society? The scene might just build a movement.